Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the extraordinary story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode Trudy Rittman and the Women That Invented Broadway. For this episode, I'm going to diverge from my usual format so that we can discuss in depth a woman who's incredibly significant to the history of Broadway, but who has also received very little recognition for her work. Her name is Trudy Rittman, and I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with my friend and colleague Albert Evans to discuss her incredible career. It is my great pleasure to welcome back to the show Albert Evans. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us today, Albert, uh, because I want to talk about a person who I think you know quite a bit about, unlike most of these other women that I've been talking about in this podcast, who would be front and center on the playbill of of a Broadway show as the composer or lyricist or choreographer. This is a woman whose name you would see in very small print in most playbills. Her name was Trudy Rittman. Even though you may not know her name... She contributed to more than 33 Broadway musicals between the 1930s and the 1970s, an incredibly long career. And Albert, just tell us some of the shows that she worked on. Well, let's see. She did Carousel, Brigadoon, South Pacific, Finian's Rainbow. Really, um, after Carousel, all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. She also did My Fair Lady, Gentlemen for Blondes, Peter Pan. The list just goes on and on. And she was a key collaborator, as you said, with Rodgers and Hammerstein, with Lerner and Lowe, and especially with the choreographers Agnes DeMille and Jerome Robbins. But let's try to explain what her contribution was. She was billed often as the dance arranger. How would you describe the job of a dance arranger? What do they do? Well, of course, they arrange the dance music, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. The dance arranger will also usually be responsible for all of the music in the show that is not sung. Um, underscoring, underscoring. Transition music between the exactly. scenes. Exactly. And then, of course, the big dances. Like if there's a big ballet, that's the job of the dance arranger. And what I think people, again, if you're not intimately involved in making a show, you might not understand that a big Broadway show, even in those days, would have multiple rooms rehearsing at the same time. And in one room would be the principal actors, the supporting actors, usually the director and the composer and lyricist working on the book and the and the big songs from the show. In another room would be the dancers and the choreographer and then the principal performers as needed who would then be working on all the dances and the choreography for the show, working very separately. Why, Albert, wouldn't a composer write the whole show himself? Well... Once a Broadway show is scheduled, it has to go up really fast. It has to come together quickly. And the composer, even if he has the skills to do that kind of arranging, dance arranging and incidental music, the composer generally has to be with the director because they're going to make changes all day. And They might need to write new songs. Exactly. And they need to see how their songs are fitting in the show. Basically, they can't just go off and disappear for the whole day with the choreographer. So... 
that's where someone like Trudy Rittman comes in. She will go with the choreographer and the dancers, and she'll sit at the piano. While they're making up the dances. While they're making up the dances. She's also making up the music, right? Yeah, so she'll see what Jerome Robbins needs, what the dancers are doing, when they lift their hand, when they it's got to get big or loud or romantic, whatever. And Jerome Robbins might say, I need Mm -hmm. eight bars of a tango here. Mm -hmm. And she comes up with eight bars of a tango. She will just improvise it. She'll write it on the spot, essentially. Now, she may go back and revise it, but she will do something right at the moment. So it's a... It requires a lot of skills. It requires a deep understanding of music and music composition. It requires improvisational skills. It also requires being a team member. You can't, you can't bring an ego to this because the choreographer may say, no, 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 I don't like that, or I'm going to cut that part of the dance, you know, and your work for the last three hours is gone, and you just have to go with it. And you're really at the service of both the choreographer and the composer. Mm-hmm. So now that we understand a little better what a dance arranger actually does, let's bring this back to Trudy. She was born in Germany in 1908. That's right. And she was a sort of a child prodigy on the piano, and she mm-hmm. quickly became being groomed to be a concert pianist as well as a, a composer. That's right, and she actually had a very promising start to her concert career. She was even hailed as Germany's most brilliant woman composer. But of course, with the rise of the Nazis and she had uh, Jewish heritage in her family, she had to get out of Germany as so many people had to do. And she left in 1933. Eventually, she found her way to America. By 1937, she was in the United States. She worked for American Ballet Caravan, which was the precursor to the New York City Ballet with George Balanchine. She worked with Aaron Copeland, Leonard Bernstein, Virgil Thompson, Mark Blitzstein. She quickly fell into the top tier of New York music. And I th- assume through her work with, with the modern dance world, she met Agnes DeMille, and she started accompanying, working with her on her concert pieces, and that led to her first Broadway show, which was Kurt Weill and Ogden Nash's musical One Touch of Venus. Agnes DeMille had, of course, already famously done Oklahoma, but Trudy did not work on that show, no. but she did work on Carousel, which was the second collaboration between Agnes DeMille and Rodgers and Hammerstein. And she had a tremendous impact on that show. What are some of the things that we would know, we could understand that she that were her contribution? Well, of course, the ballet. There's a big ballet in the second act where Billy is up in heaven and he sees what's been happening down on earth for the past 16 years or whatever. And he looks down at his daughter Louise, yeah. who is the center character that really mm-hmm. introduces that character. That ballet is defines that character. Right. And it uses themes from a lot of the songs in the show, but on the other hand, it's a storytelling ballet. So the music has to do half of the job of telling the story. Well, that's one of the things that we didn't touch on earlier was that the part of this job, and you were talking about all the things that go into this job, being a dramatist is part of it too. Exactly. You have to evoke the mood, evoke the feelings, that a lot of that is coming from the music, mm-hmm. and you're creating that music for those specific dramatic moments and dramatic effects. Right, and another um, piece in Carousel would be the Sailor's Hornpipe Dance to Blow High, Blow Low, which is a pretty simple tune. It just sounds like a sailor shanty. It's very probably the best sailor shanty you'll ever hear. 
But then it turns into, you know, a series of show-off dances. An elaborate uh, mm-hmm. extension of this simple little tune. Exactly. Which builds to a big, giant climax, mm-hmm. and that would all be Trudy's work as well. In fact, Agnes DeMille, who later, you know, was not didn't always have kind things to say about Richard Rodgers, you know, contended that he could never could have written that himself, that only, uh, Trudy was the one not only yeah. who created it, but the only one who could create that. But uh, clearly Richard Rodgers thought Trudy Rittman was of great value because they would continue to work together throughout the career of Roger and Hammerstein and even past that. He actually worked with Trudy Rittman longer than he worked with Oscar Hammerstein. She was invaluable to him. Their next show was South Pacific that they worked together on, and there she took on a new job. There really weren't any dances in South Pacific. So what did she do there? Her contribution was big drama, putting the emotions of the characters, even when they couldn't formulate them themselves, didn't really even understand what they were feeling. For instance, early in the show, there's um, a song between Nellie and Emile where they alternate singing. They alternate singing their thoughts. It's twin soliloquies. Twin soliloquies. It's says, wonder how I'd feel sitting on a hillside. And he's thinking... This is what I need. This is what I've longed for. But it's just this da 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 tune, very very simple, very um, that's repeated over and over. And then their eyes sort of lock. They come close to each other. They link their arms and lift their brandy glasses. And we hear a section that's actually called unspoken thoughts because that's exactly what it is. It takes this da-da-da-da-da and starts building it and building it into this huge, almost Wagnerian... Um, climax. Climax. And in every fact, sense of the word. In every sense of the word. And after it's over, if it does its job, which it certainly did... The audience is just left stunned. In a way, they wouldn't have been stunned if they just sang da-da-da-da-da a few times. When even Josh Logan talks about that in his autobiography, he mentions that that was something that they came up in with in rehearsal, mm-hmm. that the, they had finished the song that Rogers wrote, and Logan felt like, well, we need more. That's The scene can't... We can't end there. Right. And he staged it to bring the two of them together and stand facing each other with the Brandy Snifters, and Trudy Rittman came up with this extension of the song Mm -hmm. that really, as he said, he thought that's where the show became great, was that moment was, was so theatrical and so moving. South Pacific, so many, almost the the entirety of South Pacific is underscored. It's very unusual in that way. Mm -hmm. There's very few other shows, but it's almost like a movie. There is scoring under Mm -hmm. all the scenes, or most of the scenes and a lot of the dialogue. There, throughout, it's sort of filled in. And again, Trudy Rittman, working with Josh Logan for the most part, did all of that. So a lot of this has come out in recent years. I think that uh, most people at the time did not know about Trudy Rittman and didn't know what her contribution was to this. And in fact, her billing on South Pacific was assistant to Mr. Rogers is how she was billed. Which sounds like she sharpens his pencils. Or, right, you know. right. Followed him around and got him coffee. Uh-huh. And yet she had made this contribution. And over the years, 
the Rogers and Hammerstein organization and many of the biographers and books have been more upfront with what mm-hmm. Trudy Rittman actually contributed to these shows. Exactly. And that's not to take anything away from Richard Rogers. He was also a great musical dramatist. I think the only thing that wasn't great about Richard Rogers, and he's one of the greatest and most central mm-hmm. person in the history of the Broadway musical, is that he couldn't share the credit with some no. other people who helped him out. Well, which brings us to The King and I, where I mm-hmm. think the most, uh, where Trudy's largest contribution to a Roger and Hammerstein show happened. Again, working with uh, Jerome Robbins, the central piece of act two is the small house of Uncle Thomas Ballet. Your Majesty and honorable guests, I beg to put before you small house of Uncle Thomas. And it was entirely composed by Trudy Rittman, except for one short little section where she uses the tune to Hello, Young Lovers. There's, there's mm-hmm. singing, there's music, there's dancing. It's, I mean, it's such an incredible creation. So she bid goodbye to friends and start on her escape. Poor Eliza running and run into a rainstorm. It must have been very tedious to put it together, frankly. Richard Rogers in The King and I deliberately did not do a lot of research um, on Siamese music of, of the time because he thought that the audience would simply reject it, and that it would be too strange for a Broadway audience in the mid-century. Too foreign. Yeah, too foreign sounding. And he, so he did something that's more along the line of the sort of Asian-inspired music that you would hear again, like in a movie soundtrack. But this particular piece is supposedly written by Tup Tim, the slave girl, because she has, she has read Uncle Tom's Cabin, right. and she thinks this will be a good way to point out to the, the king the error of his ways. It's not a good idea, but, <laughs> but so the music cannot sound, it has to sound the least Western of anything She's a in Burmese the show. character. Right. And the band that's supposedly accompanying this piece would be a Siamese court band, probably. Using all Eastern yeah. instruments, they wouldn't have Western instruments necessarily. So she had to find a way to meld those two worlds yeah, together. Yeah, she had to go out. First of all, she had to find all of these exotic instruments and in some cases learn to play them or at least understand how they were played. And I just don't think Richard Rodgers would have any interest in writing that sort of thing. Spending the time, number Spending one. Spending the time. Was weeks in a studio yeah. devising all this. Whereas Trudy Rittman probably loved doing it. And it's also a little one-act play that the yeah. two of them, Jerome Robbins and Trudy Rittman, mm-hmm. are creating together. Yeah, so again, it's storytelling story. music, just like all the ballets are, only with this very unusual musical palette. Your Majesty and Honorable Guests. I will tell you end of story. Is Buddha's wish that Eva come to him and thank him personally for saving of Eliza and baby? And 
so she die and go to arms of Buddha. brings us then to the sound of music and we haven't talked about this yet but in addition to being a dance arranger she was also a vocal arranger and she had done the vocal arrangements here and there on other uh roger Mm -hmm. hammerstein shows but as i understand she did all the vocal arrangements on the sound of music all the music for the nuns there's Mm -hmm. a lot of choral singing that they do right but I think what would surprise most people was her contribution to Do, Re, Mi. And we'd be surprised to know that it wasn't all written by Richard Rogers. So if you just think of the, the song Do, Re, Mi, it's very simple. There's really not much to it. There's a couple of different tunes, but it's over with very quickly if you just sing the song. Do, a deer, a female deer, Ray, a drop of golden sun, Me. A name I call myself but a long, long way to run. Now again on stage it's a storytelling thing, all about how Maria teaches the children to awake to the beauty of music and the excitement of it and how fun it is to sing. And it has to function as a production number because in The Sound of Music there's really no chorus. No. The children function as the chorus and their numbers are the big, quote, production numbers in the show. So it has to build and stop the show the way a production number needs to work in a musical. And yet it still has to seem fairly realistic that this is children learning to do this on the spot. And that Maria is making up and finding this way to teach them on the spot as well, improvising it. So that was the work of, again, the choreographer in this case was Joe Layton working with Trudy Rittman on spelling out this piece. And we know a lot about this because Peter Howard, another great dance arranger of so many shows, he actually was the assistant conductor on the show. So he's probably in that room with Trudy learning how to be a dance arranger at the same time. And he talks about how the whole section where they uh, do sort of the bell ringing thing. That was all made up in rehearsal as a combination of what Trudy Rittman brought into the room and what Joe Layton improvised on the spot. And, of course, he says Richard Rogers was thrilled with it. He says Rogers allowed her to do whatever she liked. When we started doing the staging of it, Joe took over. He asked Trudy for certain parts to be repeated, certain embellishments. I think maybe by this time she was starting to get a little discouraged and this uh, relationship with Rogers was wearing on her a bit because in one of her books Agnes DeMille says that not getting credit for this contribution to The Sound of Music broke Trudy Rittman's heart. Agnes goes on to say she's a smart woman and you know it's dishonest. That's all it is. I don't think any artist who respected himself, really respected and trusted himself could do a thing like that. Now Agnes had her issues with Richard Rogers, and she was not 
reticent to talk about them. So there's a lot on record of Agnes DeMille complaining mostly about Rogers not giving credit to Agnes DeMille and also to Trudy Rittmond. But she goes out of her way to talk about what a genius he was. She just wanted him to be able to spread the credit around. And frankly, I wonder if the fact that Richard Rogers surrounded himself with all these brilliant women, not brilliant men, but brilliant women who would do this sort of work and because of the tenor of the times would not insist on credit. Absolutely. I think the the patriarchy has a great deal to do mm-hmm. with this because this is a way for him to have these incredibly talented people around him and yet not have to share the credit. Here's an excerpt from Trudy Rittman's contract with Rogers and Hammerstein. And it says, you hereby sell, assign, and transfer to Richard Rogers the original music and all arrangements and adaptations of music and all other contributions by you to the musical play, which may be made by you, together with the copyright and renewal and or extended copyright and all rights of every kind and nature therewithin, now and hereafter known, absolutely and forever throughout the world." That pretty much covers it. Now, one of the books makes a point that she was only paid $3,000 for her work on uh, The King and I. When you do the translation, that's actually $26,000 today. It's not enough to compensate her for what she did, but it's, it's not a terribly low amount of money mm-hmm. in, for given the time period. And I think that just the nature of the job had expanded at a rate that the salaries did not keep pace with. I think in the 1930s, a dance arranger would just do like three choruses of a tune, alternating the orchestration a little bit, and people would dance to it. But this idea of storytelling and ballets and musical plays, this was something that entered with Rodgers and Hammerstein. They really more or less invented that. And I just think the job suddenly became so much more important and significant and large that people were still thinking, oh, I give them $3,000. Right, they're just the dance arranger. Yeah. Completely underestimating what they did. Right. Unlike Agnes DeMille, there's very little written by Trudy Rittman herself uh, in terms of talking about it. She didn't write any books. She was only interviewed a very few times. I did find an excerpt from her, mm-hmm. an interview where she talks about Richard Rogers, and out here she says, and quote, I'm not a great friend of Richard Rogers. I've done six shows with him, so I know him quite well. But I'd say this. He hands over the show and says, do. He writes the songs, that's it, and gets out. There's a famous quip from Richard Rogers regarding his association with Trudy Rittman. Uh, I'm assuming it was in relationship to Small House of Uncle Thomas. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was after... Richard Rogers had sort of let the dancers do their thing, probably in the basement, didn't even hear this until they decided, okay, let's do the ballet. And let's have you know, Dick and Oscar come see it for the yeah. first time. And so they put it on the stage, they did it, and Rogers turned to, to her and um, said, you know, it's supposed to be Rogers and Hammerstein, not Rogers and Rittman. But he kept it in the show. But he kept it in the show. (laughs) Broadway Nation will be back right after this short break. 
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now! And of course, Rodgers and Hammerstein were not the only legendary writing team that Trudy Rittman collaborated with. She did all of Lerner and Lowe's shows, including Brigadoon, My Fair Lady, and Camelot. She worked on Finian's Rainbow and On a Clear Day You Can See Forever with Burton Lane, as well as Peter Pan and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Julie Stein. So these four best-of-the-best composers of Broadway all chose Trudy Rittman to help them make their shows. Yeah, and as I understand it, sometimes they would even... They would... <laughs> sort of change their own schedules so that they could all work with her. Oh, sometimes so, she was working you know, on multiple shows at the same yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. And they would try to accommodate that because they all wanted it. They didn't want to do the show without her. Mm-mm. Clearly, they she was of great value to them. So as in demand as Trudy Rittman was, she wasn't the only great dance arranger of this period, was she? She was not. Uh, not even the only great woman dance arranger. There was also Genevieve Pitot, um, who, when I was a kid, I used to see her name on, you know, some scattered albums, and one of them was Lil Abner. And I thought, what is this fancy French lady doing writing hillbilly music for Lil Abner? Great dance music and big, great lots dance. Of dance music. Yeah, lots of it. I mean, it's really, in a sense, it's a dance show. Yeah. But then I found out that she was from New Orleans, and so she was steeped in jazz and in country music and all of this. Um, so she was actually useful 
I mean, she was great, but she was also useful because I think maybe that's an area where um, Trudy Rittman would not have been the first choice. She probably wasn't going to be as good on shows like Little Abner or Guys and Dolls or working with, with Michael Kidd and some of those other choreographers. Exactly. And she also had I mean, a huge range. She could do fancy, um, but she could also do that, just let's do a hoedown, and which Trudy could do that too, but that wasn't the center of her talent. Well, this is one of those unsung women of the musical theater who hopefully are getting to be a little sung today yeah. as people know more about them and we can celebrate what they did. Thank you, Albert, for sharing your insights on this. And well, thank you. Maybe we can get back together sometime and talk more about Genevieve Pateau. It would be mm-hmm. interesting to go through her career as well. All Thanks right. so much. Thank you. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong, and I want to thank my special guest, Albert Evans, as well as everybody at The Voice of Vashon on Vashon Island and at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.